From the University of Virginia's Deliberative Media Lab, this is Democracy in Danger. I'm Robert Armengold, the show's producer. On the final day of its term last month, the Supreme Court issued a controversial ruling in a case out of Arizona. In one of the most closely watched cases of the court's term, the justices split along ideological lines to narrow the scope of the landmark Voting Rights Act of 1965. On the heels of a national election marred by the Trump campaign's empty claims of voter fraud, Republican-controlled legislatures in more and more states across the country have been making it harder for people to vote especially people who don't usually vote for GOP candidates. The court upheld two Arizona laws that the Democratic Party says discriminate against minority voters. Those two laws require Arizona election officials to strike ballots cast in the wrong precinct and make it a crime for volunteers to help voters deliver their absentee ballots. But the ruling is likely to have a much wider effect, essentially empowering states to make voting more onerous further weakening the Voting Rights Act, which brought an end to the Jim Crow era in America. Well, this week, we're going to replay an episode we aired back in September with the scholar and social critic Carol Anderson about the history of voter disenfranchisement in the United States. Here are hosts Siva Vadianathan and Will Hitchcock queuing up that interview. Well, if there's one thing that we can all agree is the bedrock of democracy, it has to be the right to vote. Government by the people doesn't mean a whole lot if the people can't express their will, can't choose their leaders. But of course, the history of voting rights in America is spotty at best. Spotty is one word for it. I mean, it's easy to forget that the right to vote was not enshrined in the U.S. Constitution. Yep, still isn't. The states were left to decide who could vote, and most of them limited voting to white property-owning men. I mean. It would take a civil war, uh, untold bloodshed, to abolish slavery and then with the 15th Amendment to guarantee suffrage to freed slaves. And that was in 1870. And it wasn't until 1920 that women gained the right to vote throughout the country. And that took the 19th Amendment. But the devil is always in the details. And from the Jim Crow era onward, uh, we've seen all sorts of nefarious efforts to undermine black voting rights. I mean, everything from poll taxes to literacy tests. More recently, as we discussed with Elizabeth Hinton on an earlier episode, the way that mass incarceration is also a form of disenfranchisement. And, you know, we we thought we had solved a lot of these problems way back in 1965 when Congress passed and President Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act. And the Voting Rights Act, you know, directly addressed a lot of the more blatant obstacles to voting that powers that be had set up in this country. And right now, we're witnessing a brazen attempt to sabotage mail-in voting with bogus assertions about fraud. It's infuriating, and I, I feel so much rage about this issue. And I have a feeling that our guest today is going to tell us a few things that's going to make us feel even angrier about where we are on this matter. We're joined today uh, by Carol Anderson, a professor of African American studies at Emory University. She's the author of many influential books, including One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. Carol, welcome to Democracy in Danger. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. Well, your book on the history of voter suppression uh, in America, it it came out in 2018. 
And I'm just guessing there was something about the 2016 election in particular that maybe yeah. made you want to write this book. Are you clairvoyant? <laughs> I'm just taking a stab here. <laughs> so actually what happened was that the pundits uh, were saying, wow, you know, black folks just didn't show up. Well, you know what? You know, they didn't show up because they weren't feeling Hillary because, you know, she's ugh, Hillary because uh, actually, you know, she's not Obama. She's Hillary. And black voter turnout had gone down by 7 percent from the 2012 election. But this was the first presidential election in 50 years without the protection of the Voting Rights Act. I don't know how we can miss that. That's one of those like key variables. <laughs> and, and so I set out to expose the magic trick, to expose how voter suppression works from the rhetoric to the policies um, to the implementation. Once you know how the trick is done, it's no longer mystifying. You're no longer in awe. You no longer think, oh, okay. And I want us to be in that space so that when we hear these folks talking about they're here to protect democracy, we know what questions to ask and we know what the answers must be. Well, Carol, the, the dark arts of voter suppression has deep history and we know some of the basic outlines of it. Uh, you mentioned the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Let's go back before that, though. I think uh, I would love to hear a primer on all of the classic methods of voter suppression, the sorts of uh, strategies, devices, laws, restrictions, norms, threats that kept people, mostly black people, from voting before 1965. Oh, you have so hit my wheelhouse. <laughs> and I'm going to take us to the Mississippi Plan of 1890, because we had the 15th Amendment in 1870 that said, the state shall not abridge the right to vote on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. African Americans, African American men were registering to vote at just these enormous levels, 80 to 90% voter registration rates in the South. And as a massive economic downturn hit the United States, poor whites and poor blacks began to work together politically to change the power structure in the U.S. so that policymakers weren't just trying to figure out how to siphon up all of the dollars to the uber rich. Well, the Mississippi state legislature looked at that and said, Lord, we got to stop this. And they came up with the Mississippi Plan of 1890 because they didn't want black people to vote. But the 15th Amendment makes it really hard to write a law saying we don't want black people to vote. So they said, wait a minute, wait a minute, we got this. We know how to do this. We're going to take the societally imposed conditions on African-Americans and make those conditions the access to the ballot box. And we're going to make it all sound legitimate. And so they created a series of policies. One was the poll tax. The language said democracy is expensive. You know, you've got all these elections. You have to have people taking the ballots, counting the ballots, places for the ballots to be. I mean, all of it, all of it. Is so, and so if you really believed in democracy, you would be willing to pay a small fee, a poll tax, to ensure that democracy ran smoothly. So you see right there in that rhetorical device, it puts the onus 
for valuing democracy on the individual and not on the state to run free and fair elections. First thing. Then the second thing in that is that after centuries of unpaid labor, followed by the Black Codes after the Civil War, which reinstalled slavery by another name, then followed by sharecropping, the access to income that the poll tax required was just impossible. And also because the poll tax required payment in cash for sharecroppers who were paid later in the year, they didn't have cash when the poll tax was due. The poll tax, while sounding nominal, it's just a small fee, actually amounted to two to six percent of a Mississippi farm family's annual income. Well, and and on top of that, there's literacy uh, tests of various creative kinds, right? Exactly. I call it legislative evil genius because it said, okay, if the poll tax doesn't get them, the literacy test will. If the literacy test doesn't get them, the grandfather clause will. If the grandfather clause doesn't get them, the good character clause will. If the good character clause doesn't get them, the understanding clause will. So the Mississippi plan is made up of a multitude of different policies. You excavate this so lucidly in your book, and it, it reads like a parallel universe in which this kinds of things just seems so vulgar, so obvious, so coarse, and yet, as you point out, were enormously effective. But so carry us up to, you know, we get a good, you know, 80 years of this. In 1965, Voting Rights Act comes along, and you write it's a seismic shift in American history. Just remind us, like, why 1965? Why did this happen then? And what was the key innovative, you know, uh, dimension of this, of this new law? Absolutely. We had an incredible civil rights movement, uh, which was designed to break Jim Crow. And one of the major organizing principles of the civil rights movement was the right to vote. In some counties in Alabama, Mississippi, and Georgia, you had zero percent of African-Americans registered to vote. Zero. In Dallas County, where Selma is, was 0.7% of age-eligible African-Americans were registered to vote. They had been mobilizing for years. And finally, we get this cataclysm on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. We see the images, the beating, the tear gas, the horses trampling over nonviolent protesters, and the cameras are rolling. That footage from Bloody Sunday was so powerful that ABC cut into its movie of the week to show the images. It began to destabilize the narrative of America as a democracy because the people began to see, oh my God, this is what happens when people are just trying to register to vote. That and then the subsequent bludgeoning death of Reverend James Reeb in Selma led to the Voting Rights Act of 1965. What made that piece of legislation so landmark was that it preempted the implementation of racist voter laws. You had to have what they called preclearance. So it said, if fewer than 50% of your age-eligible adults are registered to vote, you know, any voting law that you try to implement has to first be approved by the U.S. Department of Justice or by the federal courts. Pre-clearance worked. Just to give you an example, in early 1960, only 5% of 
age-eligible Black Mississippians were registered to vote 5% in Mississippi. Two years after the Voting Rights Act, it was almost 60%. That's a game changer. That is a seismic shift, as you rightly say. An incredible shift. So, so how effective was the Voting Rights Act? I mean, after 1965, were things good? I mean, were things significantly, measurably better? And, uh, and how do we end up where we are today? Uh, after that moment where, you know, we, we thought as a country we were taking this problem seriously. Oh, Lord. So the Voting Rights Act was so good that it immediately had the crosshairs put on it because it was a threat to the political power of white supremacy. South Carolina came after it immediately saying the Voting Rights Act violated states' rights. They're trying to have Black registrants do the literacy test, which the Voting Rights Act outlawed. And the Supreme Court said, no, Voting Rights Act is good law (laughs) and you need to get in line. So then Mississippi and Virginia came after saying, "Okay, so we're not trying to do a literacy test. We're just trying to do these little tweaks. That's all. Just these little tweaks. Um, like positions like the superintendent of education uh, that used to be an elected position. We just want to appoint him now. Well, the Supreme Court said not today, son. The Voting Rights Act goes not only for the big stuff, but also for the subtle stuff. The right to vote is important and it shall not be messed with. But there were these reauthorizations and every reauthorization you would see on one hand, the franchise being expanded. So by 1975, they are including language so that if you have language minorities, then the ballots need to be in those languages as well. This is a good thing. This is opening up the vibrancy of American democracy. So how did Barack Obama get into the White House? There were a sizable number of whites who voted for him, not the majority. But he had an incredible ground game and brought millions of new voters, registered them and got them to the polls. They were overwhelmingly African-American, Hispanic, Asian-American, the young and the poor. That would become the hit list for voter suppression. So, Carol, the 2016 election was the first presidential election in which the Voting Rights Act of 1965 did not fully apply. Is that right? Absolutely. And and it was lethal to American democracy. The U.S. Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act. In a 5-4 decision, Chief Justice John Roberts said, well, you know, racism is no longer a thing like it was in the 1960s. And so it's not really clear that this Voting Rights Act is is up to date with our current conditions. You know, we've got all of these black elected officials. We have all of these Hispanic elected officials. How can racism really be operating in 2013? How can that be? Well, you can only ask that question if you ignore the evidence. To say racism is no longer a thing That means you have to ignore the vitriol that rained down on Obama. You have to ignore the over 700 proposed changes to voting laws that the DOJ had to block. But that's where we are right now. Well, Carol, even before 2013, before the Shelby County versus Holder case, there had been a a long-term campaign by Republicans at the state level 
to introduce voter ID requirements uh, so that, you know, you, you have to show some sort of state-issued ID. And, you know, every state has it a little bit different. I, I know that in Texas, a student ID won't work for you, but a concealed carry permit will work for you. That's official enough, even though both are issued by state institutions, right? So, you know, voter IDs often get presented with that magic trick that you explained before, this idea that it's a completely reasonable expectation in today's world where so many transactions demand certification of identity and the presentation of an ID. You know, ever since 2001, we have been expected to show our IDs even when traveling within the country on an airplane, which, you know, is uh, probably not that kosher constitutionally, but no one's ever successfully challenged it. If so many people think that voter ID is a reasonable burden on people, what do we respond to that? Like, how do we say, uh, you know, it might not be that reasonable. It might be a bigger problem. And it is a bigger problem because one, its foundation is a lie. It was born out of that 2000 election, out of Missouri, where you had uh, the Board of Election illegally purge almost 50,000 voters from the rolls. And when they went to vote, their names aren't on the rolls and they're sent down to the Board of Elections. And it's just, in the most scholarly term, a hot mess. And so the Democrats sued in order to keep the polls open longer because people were, were, were trapped for hours in the Board of Elections trying to get this mess straightened out. The judge agreed and said, OK, keep the polls open until 10. The Republicans swooped in immediately after that ruling and got a higher court judge to rule that to shut the polls down. So the polls closed at 745. So the Republicans said, well, it had to happen because... They were committing voter fraud. They had dead people on the rolls. They had dogs on the rolls. They had people voting from vacant lots coming in and using addresses over and over and over again. And so we had to stop it because of voter fraud, voter fraud, voter fraud. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch, I love local journalism, investigated every one of those claims and just blew them out of the water. Nevertheless, you repeat it enough times it becomes the truth. And so Senator Kit Bond took that lie into Congress. And so as Congress is trying to figure out how to restore the American people's faith in our election system after the debacle in Florida, Kit Bond inserted the lie of voter fraud and the need for voter ID in federal law. So you get the reality of the mess in Florida, then paired up with the lie of voter fraud in federal law. And then that becomes the basis. So Indiana used that to create a voter ID law. Now, Indiana could not point to one case of voter fraud, but the way that the laws were written, it was clear that it discriminated against those who did not have certain types of government-issued photo ID. And who it discriminated against were poor people and African-Americans. And this is what we see repeatedly with these voter ID laws. In North Carolina, North Carolina's voter ID law, the Fourth Circuit said, you have targeted African-Americans with almost surgical precision. You talked about Texas, for instance. Texas's voter ID law, which was implemented two hours after Shelby County v. Holder, 
in denying the student IDs as a government-issued photo ID. 40% of students in state colleges and universities in Texas are Hispanic or African-American. I mean, the, the, it's a dazzling array of sinister techniques. And, you know, we're, we're in it again, right? And it's not just the states. It's not just localities in the South that are doing all this. We have a major assault on voting uh, by mail uh, using the claim, falsely, that uh, there is massive fraud in voting by mail. So it sounds like this is a new trick. But as you say, this is something that has been used again and again and again to legitimate all kinds of restrictions. Right. I mean, that's what Mississippi did in 1890. The Mississippi plan was predicated, it said, on clearing up corruption at the ballot box, ensuring the integrity of our elections. So, you know, Mark Twain is apocryphal, but says history may not repeat itself, but a show do rhyme. We are in the rhymes. Um, there's no legitimate proof of massive rampant voter fraud. They can't find the case. It's not there. But it becomes part of the stagecraft of ruling by fear. If you can engage people in fear that their way of life is under um, assault, they're being threatened, then they're willing to cede some of their rights, some of their own authority in order to be protected. We're, we're protecting you. We're protecting the integrity of the ballot box. We're keeping you safe. We're keeping our democracy safe. But you have to ask the next question. Right. So at this moment, though, right, we have highly motivated voters really fired up for both parties, right? And, and, uh, and there seems to be a lot of negative partisanship. And it's really hard to imagine an argument that reminds people that fairness is also supposed to be part of our way of life, right? It's supposed to be part of our creed as Americans. But you've pointed out in your work that organization by highly motivated citizens can make a difference, can push forward in some pretty significant ways. What can we expect? What can we hope for over the next decade? What should we be doing as citizens? What should we be focusing on? And who is leading the fight? It takes an engaged citizenry. Um, one of the things that we're seeing, we're seeing civil society just mobilize and organize and fight for this democracy, doing what I call the heavy lifting of democracy. Um, organizations like the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, like the ACLU, like Fair Fight, like Vote Riders, like Black Voters Matter, like Voto Latino, like the Native American Rights Fund, all of them mobilizing in their communities, registering folks to vote, speaking to the issues, asking, what do you want? And how is that tied into the vote? And that is the game changer. That is why we're seeing record turnout rates despite the pandemic, despite the voter suppression that is happening. I think one of the things we're going to see is that continued engagement of the citizenry because there is a sense of how this nation is hanging by a thread right now, seeing how government works. So what were the implications of extreme partisan gerrymandering after the 2010 election that put us in this point? 
How can we not do this again where we are silencing the voices? That's why I think we saw the ballot initiatives dealing with felony disfranchisement, um, dealing with nonpartisan redistricting commissions. I'm seeing an engagement and I'm seeing youth, young adults really say, uh uh-uh. Uh uh-uh. uh, y'all, y'all messed up. <laughs> <laughs> um, because the issue of climate change is so real. So I'm, I'm seeing engagement in, in a sense that democracy cannot run on its own. And what I firmly believe is that as this regime has systematically debased and degraded the institutions of democracy, what has not been debased and degraded have been the American people. That's heartening. Well, Carol Anderson, thank you so much for joining us today on Democracy in Danger. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Siva and Will. Thank you. That was Carol Anderson, professor of African-American studies at Emory University and the author of One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy, published in 2018. Her newest book out this year is The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. Democracy in Danger is part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to find all of our sister shows. We'll be right back after this message from our friends. Hey, Democracy in Danger listeners. I'm Robert Pease from The Purple Principle, a podcast about the perils of polarization. How did our country get so polarized? The rise of television news, the rise of social media, every single force is pushing us apart. How could we become less polarized? People have a lot more in common than they think they do on policy. And can less partisan, more indie-minded Americans help bridge the divide? I think that there's value to having folks like me outside of the parties. Get a better grip on this whole partisanship thing with the Purple Principle wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, Carol didn't quite illuminate the catch-22 that we face, but I think it's pretty clear to us. Because of voter suppression, it's going to be that much harder in 2022, maybe 2024, to change the American political power structure enough to reinvigorate the Voting Rights Act of 1965 to reinvigorate the spirit of universal suffrage, and so we're 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 swimming upstream here, right? We're 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 working against a very powerful set of currents: judicial currents, legislative currents, fear among white voters all over the country that they may be losing power, and the status anxiety, which we've seen time and time again, invigorates people to work against the very principles of democracy. You know, I I agree with that, Siva. And and I also was struck by Carol's sense of the presence of injustice in our country over so long, but also her sense that we're going to win. And I I just take two pieces of data that she gave us. One, the Bloody Sunday, uh, March of 1965, uh, on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, when John Lewis and others were were beaten and beaten savagely. the result of that was to galvanize the country. And the other second data point was the way in which the Supreme Court under John Roberts was able to legitimate essentially removing controls uh, against uh, voter suppression 
uh, by saying, hey, we're not racist anymore. He has been conned, or he is conning us, into believing that systemic racism doesn't exist. Uh, no, we're all, we're all progressives now. No, none of us sees color. Um, we're all just happy, post-racial Americans. And nothing could be further from the truth. And in fact, uh, that whole theory has been exploded uh, just in this last summer once again. Right, right. The other thing I sensed, and this was, I think, uh, something that was pretty clear, when she talked about all the different institutions and organizations and devoted people who have a clear focus in mind right now and into the future to make sure, once again, that all Americans are going to have a chance to vote. When she walked through those organizations, it struck me that some of them are taking an explicitly legal path to addressing some of these challenges. Others are taking an explicitly electoral path. Others are working in the realm of public opinion. So this multi-front attack, this is a, a strong model, one we've had for more than 150 years, and one that occasionally we let slip and atrophy a little bit. And we might have done that, right? We might have done that. We might have been so comforted after 1965 that we finally had an operational democracy in this country that we took it for granted and we let it slip and we let the forces that are allied against democracy to play this magic trick that she described. And I love that phrase, this magic trick. And and we keep falling for it. We're falling for the magic trick, but it seems to me that the... Um the array of magic tricks is starting to wear really thin. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it is the sheer brazenness with which right. these activities are being undertaken. I mean, when you're ripping blue mailboxes out of the ground, you know, it doesn't take uh, a great deal of theorizing to understand something fishy is going on. And I think that sense of outrage is what fundamentally will, will fuel these many organizations who have been toiling too often in the shadows um, to gain some sunlight and maybe some support as uh, we all recognize that our actual right to vote is being threatened. That does it for this rebroadcast of Voting Blocked. We're going to keep dropping some superb past episodes for you every two weeks this summer as we gear up for season three. In the meantime, your vote matters here on Democracy in Danger. We want to hear from you. Shoot us a tweet at dndpodcast or go to dindanger.org for show notes, links to related news, and more about our partners. You can listen to all of our episodes on Stitcher, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your audio. Democracy in Danger is produced by me, Robert Armengol, with help from Jennifer Ludovici. Our interns are Denzel Mitchell, Jane Frankel, and Ellie Bashkow. Support comes from the University of Virginia's Democracy Initiative and from the College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Deliberative Media Lab. We're distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective, the podcast network of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Siva Vadianathan. And I'm Will Hitchcock. And we'll see you here next time.